So in law school, I, I realized that the experiences that I had on the street, A, gave me a different frame of reference for not only the client, but also the cases we were dealing with. I understood the way that some of these crimes were being committed. I understood some of the background of what was bringing people into the criminal justice system. And I think it gives me a better appreciation for my clients as people, separate and apart from what their case is about. And I think that sometimes it makes it easier for them to open up to me. I think that within certain sets of charges, it's easier for me to speak to clients. And so I've used that in order to build up the practice that I have. Welcome to Of Counsel. I'm your host, Sean Robichaud. Join us as our podcast profiles remarkable legal advocates from all areas of law, the professionals of persuasion, the catalysts of social change, defenders of the downtrodden, protectors of social order, and the mercenaries of corporate interests. Those who, with the power of words alone, can shape the laws of nations, define human rights, and preserve or take away the liberty of another human being. Who are these lawyers? What are their secrets? And how do they balance it all? Court is now in session. All rise. As someone who came from a background of surviving on the street as a youth, it's no surprise that Jordana Goldless now defends the downtrodden of society with a passion and wisdom very few in the criminal bar possess. Like many of our guests on our show, Jordana's story is truly exceptional. Since her call to the bar in 2008, Jordana has represented people charged with everything from simple drug possession to murder. Her interview and unique story teaches us about the value of discipline, determination, and perseverance. Not only is she a feared litigator in the courtroom, but she's an active member of the community she came from by volunteering with homeless youth and showing them the way out and the success that she's achieved in her own life. Sharp, skilled, humble, and tattooed, Jordana Goldless reminds us that before you feel like criticizing someone, remember that not all people in the world have come from the same advantages. Before we begin our podcast, I also wanted to mention our exclusive sponsor, LexisNexis Canada. We're very grateful that they've joined us and allowed us to expand our reach and travel outside of the Toronto core, interviewing great lawyers like Jordana and passing that on to our listeners. LexisNexis is a leading provider of legal research and resources. Their legal databases, practice software, texts, and updates provide an exhaustive solution for small, medium, and large-sized firms. Even here at RoboShows, LexisNexis is an essential part of our own workflow in defending our clients. From beginning to end of a file, Lexis Advanced Quick Law has relied heavily upon us in ensuring that everything that we pass up to the court is the most current and influential. Whether it's legal text, weekly updates, or leading case law, LexisNexis has a complete solution for every practice in every area of law. Be sure to check out LexisNexis and their bookstore by visiting LexisNexis.ca. For the most part, I do these podcasts and I try and reach out to an eclectic group of lawyers, but every once in a while I do one very selfishly and reach out to people that I have a lot of respect for in the criminal bar. And I'm here today with Jordana Goldlist. Now, Jordana has an amazing story to tell, and I want to start it with uh, a quote that I managed to find on the internet. You said once, you have someone charged with an armed robbery, for example. How do I know what circumstances in their life put them in the position to be charged with this? And it may be a false accusation. Everyone has a story, and I've always been curious to know what that story is. And I'm not going to know what it is if I immediately put them on the defensive. So don't pry or ask a client outright about their life history. But as you start asking questions, starting from what are you doing here in jail? You start learning more and more about the person and you start earning their trust. So let me ask you, Jordana, what are you doing here? Why are you a defense lawyer? What are you doing in jails? So thank you for having me on the show, Sean. I appreciate that in the introduction. What I'm doing here in this profession uh, actually started for me when I was about seven or eight years old and I had uh, a family member charged with a criminal offense. And I watched him be represented and I watched the power and the voice of the lawyer and the importance that they held uh, within our family. And I wanted that. I wanted 
to be able to affect someone's life in such a profound way without them even realizing it. I don't think that that, that particular lawyer had a, a real appreciation for what he did for our family throughout our lives and growing up and always appreciating the work that he had done. And I, I wanted that. And then during my teens, I took a different path in life that I thought would have precluded me from being a lawyer. And I got back into school when I was about 21 years old. And basically on a whim, I applied to Osgood and was accepted. And I had thought that the life that I lived would have prevented me from being a lawyer. And when I had the opportunity to do so, I obviously took it wholeheartedly initially in civil law and then went back on what I had wanted to be since I was a kid, which was a criminal defense lawyer. And so what I'm doing in jails now is hopefully um, having the same impact on other people's lives as, as another lawyer had on mine. Mm-hmm. So your story, I think, is rather unique, at least to the law profession, because like you say, there's a lot of people who go down this path and either for their own reasons of giving up on the idea of becoming a lawyer or for other obvious reasons, they just can't do it. And if you don't mind, I I know you've spoken about it in other forums. And um, I I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that tumultuous time as a teenager and young adult. The day I turned 14, I came home and I was told that I should pack my bags because the next day I was being moved into a group home. And I spent uh, 18 months bouncing around different group homes and institutions, came back home at 15, and uh, the same baggage that I left with was even more prevalent. And so I spent the next year on friends' houses, couch surfing. And at 17 years old, I left home and I left school for three years and basically just lived recklessly. I was a homeless high school dropout. I didn't get back into school until I was 20 years old. I graduated high school at 21, accepted into York University immediately, graduated at 24, and at 25, I started law school. And so the path that I took certainly wasn't the typical straight line. And I had thought that those those years spent living out on the street were going to stop me from being a lawyer. I thought that they were going to stand in the way of the skills that I needed. I thought I didn't have the skills because I took such a large detour from most other people. And it wasn't until I was in law school that I realized that the skills that I had acquired on the street were actually going to work to my benefit as opposed to my detriment. Mm -hmm. And so do you think that just living that uh, lifestyle at that time, uh, obviously it affected you in becoming a defense lawyer, but how did those skills sort of blend into it? Um, And what skills did you have that you could see clearly were lacking by some of your peers in law school that you knew would ultimately form into, I presume, amazing litigation skills and and understanding of people? So in law school, I I realized that the experiences that I had on the street, A, gave me a different frame of reference for not only the client, but also the cases we were dealing with. I understood the way that some of these crimes were being committed. I understood some of the background of what was bringing people into the criminal justice system. And I think it gives me a better appreciation for my clients as people, separate and apart from what their case is about. And I think that sometimes it makes it easier for them to open up to me. I think that within certain sets of charges, it's easier for me to speak to clients. And so I've use that in order to build up the practice that I have. I mm-hmm. think that I've I built up a practice very, very quickly within my career. Uh, within five years of practicing in criminal law, I was out on my own with 120-something files. Right. So I had built up a massive practice within a firm before I left, and I really owe my time out on the street to that because I think we all graduate with the same degree. We're all capable of reading the same cases and the same criminal code. It's a question of what we do with that, how we use our own experience within our practice right yeah it's a it's a really interesting insight because i mean what you're you're drawing a distinction between the names of the cases and what they represent which is mostly about lawyers and judges and opposed to the individuals themselves i you know it's funny as you're describing that i remember distinctly meeting 
Bell Navis and Lawrence. And that, of course, was a very important case when we were in law school. And them not even knowing that this, you know, this went to the Supreme Court of Canada. This was the case on charter standing. And they couldn't care less because they were dealing with their own problems at the time. And who cares what some law student, as I was at the time, thought about some case. They just had an immediate problem that needed to be dealt with. So I'm, I'm glad you share that because I think it's an important insight that I think is lost on a lot of people when they're becoming lawyers about what actually they're doing as opposed to just thinking of getting reported. I came across, um, you know, as I was going through um, your Instagram, and I have a few questions about that. But one thing that I came across that I've I've followed you for a while on Instagram, and one thing that I've always noticed is the hashtag, who judges the judges. And I was always curious, what exactly do you mean by that? Does it have anything to do with a quote I came across, and that is, I know that there's more to a person than the current situation that they're faced with. If someone was going to judge me for my worst moments in my life and the worst decisions I've made, I'd be in trouble. Is there, am I onto something there? Totally. It's part of it. So uh, who judges the judge is really calling into question the way that respect is meted out within the justice system um, as a whole. It's not meant to demean the role of judges within the system at all. I think that it's about how we judge the character of a person. Mm. So when we walk into court, you and I as lawyers are greeted as counsel. Good morning, counsel. We get to bypass the lines. We don't have to go through the security systems. We are given a level of respect for no other reason than the fact that we carry a law society card. The people that greet us have no idea what we've done in our life, what we did the night before, what we're going to do the next week. They right. don't know us as a person. We are respected by our title. Judges sit, of course, at the top of that hierarchy, and they are given the utmost respect based on their title. And, of course, the lowest denominator is the clients. Except without those clients, none of us throughout the pyramid would have those titles that we're so proud of. Our respect is based on titles that depend on the titles we respect the least, right? Without criminals in the system, there would be no need for the judges and the lawyers and the court staff. And yet all of those individuals show the least amount of respect. It's almost like we ignore the fact that we have an economic system that is really feeding off of the lowest denominator in, the, in society. And I don't agree with it. So who judges the judge is about taking the structure of the system to task for the way that it really feeds upon people. I think that the way in which some portions of the justice system are structured make it impossible for some people to escape. I think the justice system right now is a revolving door. I think that when you look at, for example, our probation system, uh, it doesn't help anyone. It does nothing but create a system where people end up back before judges. Right. It doesn't help them. It doesn't help society. You and I both know that there's never been a single one of our clients who said, oh, wait, I can't commit this break and enter because I'm on probation. Right. They're just not. It's not stopping people from committing crimes. So it's not keeping society safe and it's not helping people connect with the resources they need to find a better approach. So if it's not helping the individuals who are on probation and it's not helping to protect society from people who are on probation, what is the point other than to create jobs? Mm -hmm. and keep people stuck within the system. So I think that we've created a system that does work as a revolving door and who judges the judge as a hashtag is meant to question the way in which we respect certain members of that community. It's a call to action to look beyond people's titles and assess them by their character. And that's a reminder to people that just because someone is coming into the system as an accused person, it says nothing about their character as a human. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I take the time to get to know my client's story. Okay, you've been caught with a gun and you've been caught with a quantity of crack. What situations led you to that position that that's what you've decided to do with yourself? And maybe at the end of the story, I find that they don't have a good character. Maybe I find the level of disrespect we show to that person in general is warranted. But the only way that I know that is if I get to know them. And I think that generally within our profession, people aren't doing that. We're writing people off too quickly. You know, I think that's something that's often lost on people, particularly as it relates to bail and, and obviously the issues you're discussing is people want the end game now. You know, they don't want the process to say, 
okay, well, we can grant this person bail and they will be held accountable if they did something wrong, um, right? But it's just this constant sort of, we'll judge them immediately. We'll keep them on the system, as you say, in probation. So I'm curious, with, with your particular insights and knowledge that you have, have you had conversations with judges or lawyers outside of the courtroom about some of these real struggles? Because there is a real detachment from most lawyers and what their clients actually face. Have you ever been able to impress upon lawyers what they're what they don't know about and essentially basically reframe their perspective so i mean i've had casual and social conversations with other lawyers i don't think that i've spoken with judges and tried to take them to task for the way that they've done things and i have to say it's not i don't want to generalize and say all judges are like this there's been some you know phenomenal judges that i've come across that want to understand what it is that my client was, you know, thinking when he was caught red-handed for that burglary, for example, or that robbery, or for whatever the situation is. They truly want to understand in order to make a fair assessment of the person. I think that if more judges were able to do that, they might reconsider the way in which they're sentencing people, right? The reality is we're closing a lot of doors. And the system itself is closing a lot of doors on people by virtue of their criminal record. Mm-hmm. Right? What are you supposed to do if you're caught, you know, robbery with a firearm at 18 years old? You go and you serve your sentence. You come out of jail. You want to live a different life, but you've got a criminal record following you for the next 10 years with robbery with a firearm on it. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think you have limited access to the type of occupations that would be meaningful, and that's a part of what keeps people stuck in the system. Not necessarily an intrinsic desire to always remain, you know. A, branded quote-unquote criminal so let's say there is that person that is in that situation perhaps maybe not as severe but someone who's had a lot of personal struggles and issues that they've had to deal with how is it that at least from your perspective and, and some of the unique knowledge you have how is it that someone can maintain and reach ambitions of maybe going to law school and becoming a skilled and successful defense lawyer later on against all odds you know like it's put another way it's one thing to say study hard believe in yourself and never give up from a comfortable bed. But how do you do that to someone who's been through kind of what you're describing? Do you have any advice for them? Well, I think it depends on what's on the criminal record. I know that there was at least two lawyers in my graduating class who did have serious criminal records and the law society granted them eventually uh, their license. I think that they had to go through more stringent regulatory meetings in order to prove themselves. But I don't think that they're precluded I do think that a lot of people who are coming through the system or trying to come out of it don't know that. I think there's an informational gap, right? I don't think people realize that if they do put their minds to getting away from that sort of lifestyle, they actually can overcome, right? When I was debating what I was going to do with my future, I truly believed that this profession was way out of my reach. And not because anyone within the profession was telling me that. It was a belief that you grow up with, right? When you're coming out of that situation or you're coming out of that circumstance. I try to educate my clients and tell them, listen, you want to do different, you can do different, right? It's that simple. It's a matter of crafting a plan that would allow you to put those skills in place. I think that society sets these false ceilings for people. I really do. I think that especially with a lot of the youth that I work with. And that's part of what I'm trying to do more and more. I I volunteer with different youth organizations, helping kids in transition from homelessness, from the streets, try to overcome. And I teach life skills workshops. And one of the key skills is just belief in yourself that you can do it. Because really, like, once you get to university, you realize that you're just as smart as everyone else in the room. You do the work and it gets done. When I got to law school, I realized despite the fact that I was not educated at private school, I didn't grow up in a family of lawyers and judges, quite the opposite. I was the only one that had made it to graduate school. I could still compete. I could still graduate with the same degree. And nobody's telling kids in the system that they can do that. Right. So tell me about that. I'm, I'm really curious about your, your volunteer work with kids and youth shelters and sort of how you got involved in that, uh, how it's evolved and, and sort of how it from, you know, we were just talking earlier about how it's now opened up other opportunities to try, uh, achieve the same goals, but in a macro sense. So I fell into volunteer work 
totally by accident. I was 19 years old and I decided that I wanted to go back to school. I had a few courses from every year that I needed to fill in before I could do my OICs, but or OACs back then we had to do mm-hmm. Ontario academic credits in order to get into university. And so I found this program that allowed me to go and do correspondence courses in the morning in a classroom setting. And in the afternoon, I could volunteer at a youth group and also get educational credits for it. And so I looked through the you know list of, of youth groups that there was and YMCA's youth substance abuse was on there. And I thought, okay, great, I'll go volunteer. And I started off doing reception work, clerical work, just helping them around the office for a few hours every afternoon for school credits. And one day, one of the workers was going out to speak to a group of young girls in close custody and said, hey, can you come help me? And I said, sure. And I went in and I sat and helped conduct this just open discussion geared at harm reduction and trying to give these girls the information they needed to make some better choices with themselves. And I loved it. It was just a phenomenal experience for me. I started doing more of those types of groups. So I was asked to speak at a symposium for healthcare workers Um, that was geared towards people who are struggling with both addictions issues and other issues of self-harm because at the time everything was being treated separately. All different symptoms were being treated separately instead of people going back and trying to address the underlying issues that were really the root cause of, of all of these symptoms. And when I had finished speaking to this group of maybe 80 or 90 healthcare professionals, I was offered three paid positions within the field and I had no experience. At the time I was, by this point I had uh, just graduated from high school, I was 21 years old and um, starting university at York. And I took two of the positions at the same time. One was with CAMH and one was with a smaller organization that wanted me to write drug abuse policies for their program. And it was just fantastic. And each of those experiences led to other opportunities and it just sort of snowballed. I got to law school and decided that I was just going to focus on law school. Um, And so I stopped volunteering and I stopped working and just put all my attention towards school. And I always promised myself that when I was quote unquote successful or when I felt like I was successful, I would go back and volunteer. And as I made my way through law school and then into the profession, I always was waiting for that right time when I was quote unquote successful enough. Um, And I guess when I opened up my own practice, I said, you know what, if I've got enough clients that I can go on my own, then surely I've got enough of my own personal achievements to go back and help other kids that are struggling. And that was really the motivation was to set an example for kids that have been told their whole life, like your life experience is going to prevent you from doing what you really want. Mm-hmm. And so you're still doing that today? I'm doing that today. Uh, I reached out to, I sat on the board of directors for Street Haven for a year. I went and did a couple of workshops with um, a rehabilitation center in Toronto. I volunteer still with Tamea's Retreat, which is focused on girls trying to exit uh, street uh, sex trafficking. And I work at Covenant House um, as a youth mentor, as well as conducting life skills workshops for mm-hmm. kids in transition. This is a lot of weight to put on you, not just in what you're doing in volunteer work, but also as a defense lawyer. And I'm curious, and it's a question I ask a lot of our guests, how do you try and maintain your own personal harmony? How do you make sure that you get through the rough days? Because I would think that, especially dealing with youth, there's a lot of really sad things that you see and can be frustrating. No, I don't I don't think that at all. I think that the youth I encounter actually are so optimistic and they're so hopeful and they really just want to believe that they can achieve what they're trying to achieve, whether that's stable housing, uh going to school, getting jobs. No, I, I don't think that it's it's sad. I think that one of the things I teach is that if you think of yourself as a victim and you're focused on your own victimization, then you're really just perpetuating that cycle onto yourself. Right. The whole key is to change that script for yourself. You know, one of the saddest things I heard was from a young girl trying to exit sex trafficking told me that she was unable to get out of bed for two years because the baggage she was carrying was too heavy. And I said, as long as you, you know, focus on it as baggage, that's how you'll always think of it. But if you think of it as as bizarre as it sounds, but if that's your own personal toolbox, then you have some really unique skills. You have strength that other people just don't possess, right? Most people don't get to 
wake up every day having faced that trauma and live, live their lives. If you can do that, then you have strength, you have the ability to really get through some of life's worst situations. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's about changing the way that people view their own experiences. So no, I don't see it as sad. I don't think that what they've been through is sad. I think that there's certainly things that they wouldn't want to repeat. But if you turn around and say, but these are the experiences that can be a benefit over most people in society who don't get to experience that life, then you get to use it to your advantage. Turning then the question to you and your perception, what does a great day look like for you, Jordana Goldlist? successful bail hearing is it (laughs) (laughs) i love walking people out of custody especially at the bail stage because that means the system's working that is an innocent person who's accused of a crime they should not be spending the next you know 18 months or two years in jail fighting their case if at the end of the day the crown meets its burden and the person is convicted then they'll be sentenced but while they are not yet convicted while it's a person who's presumed innocent they shouldn't be in jail period full stop right and and that to me is is one of the greatest success obviously i love winning charter applications um i love when a client comes to me and says you know i spoke to this other lawyer and i don't have a defense and lo and behold there's a defense when you actually win that case you just feel like I listened to you and I reviewed the case and gave you the benefit of the doubt that someone else refused to do. That to me is a fantastic feeling because I know that but for my intervention, that person would be spending you know, X amount of years in jail and then come out with a criminal record for something that they had a defense for. What about when court's done and you can't, you can't obtain any more liberty for anyone for the day? What do you do to um, relax and enjoy yourself? I don't relax very much. (laughs) Uh, I'm at the gym four days a week at least. I'm at the shooting range once or twice a month. I have fantastic friends and family that I surround myself with. Mm -hmm. Uh, My volunteer work for me is unbelievably fulfilling. I actually, I love it. I don't look at it as part of the job. I I look at it as what I do to help fulfill myself um, and help others. It's it's a way for me to make my own experience meaningful, yeah. right? Otherwise, there, what was the point? What was the point of me living all of those horrific years if I can't do something with it now that is to everyone's benefit, me and the people that I, I get to encounter? Right. So for me, I love that. I generally don't take days off. I work seven days a week for three or four months, and when I feel I'm about to burn out, I jump on a plane and, yeah. and usually head to either an island or Miami. I have to say, your Instagram account <laughs> is awesome, and I love following you, and you you watch it as trying to find an analogy, and then basically the, the thing I thought of is it looks like a, a live Instagram account of, of the Rick Ross song, Lamborghini Doors. <laughs> I and, love that. <laughs> you know, as I was looking at it last night, I, I also thought, you know, there's such a stark contrast there because you're clearly this really successful lawyer who has accomplished so much and yet is still giving back. And I I wonder what it feels like to have that contrast to, you know, you're literally sitting in a Lamborghini compared to where you were, you know, when all this started and where your motivation started. Like, do you ever look back and think this is so surreal? Like that contrast ever set in? Every day. Yeah. I feel it most when I'm in court, you know, Mm. driving Lamborghinis and driving McLarens and fast cars and that sort of... That's the toys that come with the success. But for me, it's like when I win a difficult legal argument, I sit down and I'm like, wow, I was that street kid that this judge would have walked past 20 years ago, not even paid attention to. And now I'm able to convince them of a really difficult legal argument. Mm -hmm. You know, and part of why I've been more outspoken about my past is to hopefully like enlighten people on the potential that someone has despite what they're presenting today right and that's why i say like if i was to be judged by the worst decisions i made at the worst point of my life like i wouldn't be able to do what i do today so for me those surreal moments are when i'm successful in court and i'm successful in my job or you know i i get to speak to a group of girls and have someone come up to me and say wow like that 40 minute discussion you just gave us turned my whole life around mm-hmm. I, I have girls now that are going to school and working legitimate jobs because i told them they could that's all i did and nobody's ever told them they could that's 
ridiculous and surreal at the same time, right? How do we have like a huge segment of the population that everyone's ignoring and no one's telling them that they can do different or do better, right? We have, we have kids that we're representing that have been selling drugs since they were like 16 years old. Nobody stopped and said, hey, you're really good at sales. Let's get you out of this context and put you into something that's actually pro-social, right? right? If we did more to offer kids an alternative, a viable alternative, because when you take a drug dealer and you say, go work at Tim Hortons, they're going to laugh at you. They don't want to live a life that they don't think has any potential to make them, you know, what you've called Rick Ross money, right? Right, right, yeah. <laughs> that's the reality, right? That's right. that's what they're being fed on Instagram is the dream. And if they think that this is the only route to that dream, then that's what you're going to stay in. But that's a lie, right? Yeah. They can do differently. They can do phenomenally if they're just given the tools that they need to exit that lifestyle. Right, because the exact same kid in different circumstances gets into being a sales and big pharma and they're swimming in money, right? Absolutely. And it's amazing, you know, the more I've spoken a bit about my past, that people are kind connecting with me, you know, through social media and saying, you know what, I used to do this. And now, you know, I'm living this pro-social, completely legit life and doing really well in it. And I understand what you're saying. It's it's amazing to see how many people, but nobody wants to talk about it, right? Mm-hmm. Quite frankly, if you asked me, you know, six or seven years ago to come on your show and talk about my life as a street kid, I, absolutely not. <laughs> I thought, there's absolutely no way I'm going to put myself out like that right. because I don't want to be judged poorly by the choices that I made 20 years ago. But I realized that if I'm staying quiet, everyone else is staying quiet. And the kids that are coming up today, they don't think they can do anything different. And you know, that was sort of what I want to talk to you about because you are, I mean, unique in a lot of ways as a lawyer, but one of the things that is very unique is your level of transparency as a lawyer. Because what I've uh, seen is lawyers, generally speaking, are very, very guarded in their personal life and their past and ensuring that their private life is uh, highly uh, compartmentalized from their public. But you, you know, clearly have uh, reversed that and used it to your advantage. So what are your thoughts generally on the importance of being transparent as a lawyer? What could other lawyers learn from from that? That's what distinguishes us as lawyers, right? What makes you and I different as lawyers, Sean, is our personalities, the way that we're going to approach certain problems. We can both go to court and make the same arguments relying on the same Supreme Court of Canada decisions for a charter argument or, you know, if it's a domestic case, WD. It's, it's a question of what makes you unique as a person. And that can't be our law degree because that's what we have in common. Right. And so it was more a marketing strategy, you know, and I, I've always been business orientated. I always wanted to make money. That was why I went to law school was to follow my dream and be financially successful. The life that you see me living on Instagram is life that I always wanted to live. And so The question became, you know, how am I going to differentiate myself from a marketing perspective in order to have the type of clients that I want, to live the life that I want, to have the cases that I want, the practice that I want. And it came down to how do I attract that into my life? And you can't do it just being the same lawyer as everyone else. And the reality is there are a lot of really good lawyers. There are a lot of really smart, hardworking lawyers. So being smart, being hardworking, reading the case law, knowing the law, like that's just not enough, right? There has to be something that clients can look at about me that draws them into me or not, right? I think that there's some people that would look at my Instagram account and think, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not interested in a lawyer that presents in this sort of fashion. So for example, if you're bothered by a lawyer with tattoos, I'm not getting hired and I'm okay (laughs) with that, Right. right? So I think that my personality and my personal experience is what's going to draw in the type of clientele that I want. And so I put myself out on my website and I put myself out on social media because that's where people are going to get information about me. They're either hearing about me through other people in custody or, you know, people that I've successfully defended. But the next thing they do is Google me. Mm-hmm. And so the question became, what do I want them to see about me? Just, you know, media reports of my successful cases, like, there's plenty of us that have that. I want them to see what I'm about and then decide whether or not they want to hire me. 
Yeah, and I have to say, it's something I've always really admired about um, you as a lawyer and a person is your willingness to embrace essentially who you are and, of course, how that manifests itself in your advocacy. And ironically, um, you know, I think that lawyers being guarded about who they are is exactly why they aren't doing well and why they aren't obtaining the success that they want because they're so concerned about thinking, well, if I show a little bit of who I am, then there's certain clients, you know, that one out of a hundred may not want me, but you can't, you know, get every fish in the ocean. You have to focus on who you want to be. And I think your insight in, in on that is, is, is very good. Um, I want to talk to you about the tattoos, um, <laughs> because <laughs> wow, your tattoos are, are so cool. Um, <laughs> if you go to your Instagram account, you can see you've got basically your whole upper body's covered. And I guess one of the more recent ones is um, of three women on the back with he, hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil. Yes. And then there's another one, which is Pamela Anderson with her eyes blindfolded. So tell me about your tattoos. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> to the extent that you can. Um, no, I started tattooing myself when I was 16 years old and I started tattooing things that were meaningful to me. So different life events or circumstances with different people. Whenever I crossed over certain milestones, I adorn my body with them as just a means of putting my story on the outside of me. And so it started off on my arm and it slowly made its way from you know, the very top of my arm down towards my elbow and then it hit my wrist. Last year, I decided that I wanted to put a full back piece um, that basically goes from collarbone to hamstrings down across my back. And it's about where I'm coming from. So it's on my back because it's sort of uh, representative of there being a monkey on my back. There's actually three monkeys. There are the three wise monkeys, of course, posed as see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. They are, the three girls are standing in front of a cafe. So it's hard to see in the picture from my Instagram page, but it's actually Cafe Isabella which anyone who practiced criminal law or policing at the end of the 90s would know that it was, um, it was a pretty significant hangout for uh, street kids from 95 to about 99 when it got shut down. Uh, it was beside a nightclub called Spin Cat that was eventually shut down for a shooting. And that was um, basically a hangout that I spent time with when I was out on the streets when I was 16 to 19. And so you have the three wise monkeys standing in front of this cafe and so for me, it was indicative of the life that I've left behind, but it's also the force that drives me forward every single day. And so I put it on my back as sort of a reminder as well as a display that I am i can't be ashamed of the life that I left behind me. Mm -hmm. You're actually going to be featured in an upcoming exhibit, uh, Tattoo Stories. I am. Right? October I am. 4th, 6 to 9. So tell me about that. At Kiza Lounge. Very cool. So I posted a progress shot of the of the work on my back and I had a woman from a agency called lifted by purpose reach out to me. And this is an amazing organization that I didn't know much about before. Um, and I'm still learning about, but really what they are is a group that helps young people who are either at risk or involved with the criminal justice system, explore their, underlying issues and find alternative solutions through the arts. And so they have music programs, they have art programs, they have drama programs, and they're really just a, a phenomenal community group. And so one of their fundraising events is called Tattoo Stories, and it's about people who tell their life story through their ink. Hmm. So they reached out to me and they asked me to be a part this year, and I was absolutely honored. And so I, along with, I think they now have 12 people that are involved and it's tattoo artists as well as uh, youth and young people. And I don't know where I fit in that so category, our, but <laughs> how do our listeners get tickets? Then? I just go to lifted by purposes, Instagram account. So it's okay. called lifted by purpose. Nice. And there's tickets available there. I think there's also tickets at the door. So if people wanted to show up at Kiza lounge on October the 4th from six until 9 PM, you can buy a ticket at the door and come in and support a phenomenal cause. You can be there. I am going to be there. All right. I'm going to be there. And uh, close-up photos of my, all of my art will be on display <laughs> as well. So um, I want to talk to you about firearms because, <laughs> um, you know, you're, again, your Instagram account, you can see not only do you like firearms, but you're really good at it. Very good grouping. But it sort of 
touches upon a more serious issue, and that is um, if you read a lot on defense lawyers' Twitter timelines, for example, particularly those in Toronto, uh, a lot of them seem very supportive of gun control to the point where there should be complete elimination of handguns in the city and just a general aversion towards guns because, you know, defense lawyers see a lot of the violence that it can wreak. However, you seem to be on the opposite side of things in the sense that you are someone who advocates for responsible firearm ownership. So you actually are someone who sees it as in, in around enthusiasts. So what would you say to the critics, the defense lawyers who say, let's ban them all and get rid of it? Because they know that's not going to do anything to hurt their pockets. That's, that's their own self-interest. Well, why don't we just throw a whole bunch of money at taking legal guns out of lawful gun owners' hands, knowing that's not in any way going to have any impact on the crime that they're making money off of? That's what I would say. Because anyone who thinks that taking legal guns away from people who are following the law is somehow going to have a significant impact on the people who are illegally acquiring and using firearms, it's a ridiculous notion and interestingly enough, it's not being embraced even by advocates for zero gun violence in our communities. And so there's a movement, and uh, actually one of the, the leaders of that movement was just featured after the town hall meeting on guns that was held on Sunday. He was featured on an interview talking about this. His name is Lewis. He, he's the head of the zero gun violence movement. It's a movement that is also attended to by mothers of kids who have been killed by gun violence. They asked me to sit in on one of their groups a few weeks ago, and I can tell you, these women, they are not proponents of guns at all. They are doing everything they can to try to rid our city of gun violence, and no one in the room that I was sitting in supported a handgun ban because they know that those are not the people that are carrying around guns illegally, using them illegally, reselling them illegally. Are there exceptions to that? Sure, sure. Maybe there's a, a few. In the nine years that I've been representing people on gun charges, I think I've had two cases of legal gun owners using their firearms in an illegal fashion. Out of the hundreds that I've come across, the uh, hundreds of cases that I've come across. Mm -hmm. And so it's a political ploy. Um, you know, let's take guns out of Toronto. What's that going to accomplish? Because I can tell you, being a legal gun owner with a collection of firearms, they have never been carried on me. If the RCMP wants to do a better job checking to make sure that all of my guns are in my home, sure, come by. Mm -hmm. You'll see them properly stored, you know, with trigger locks. We're, we're the ones that are following the law. And my friends who shoot, they're following the law. I mean, we're all so conscientious because it's something that we enjoy. It's like taking cars away from everyone because people are continuing to drink and drive. It, it just doesn't make sense. And it's not going to stop the flow of guns into the city. And nobody wants to spend the time, effort, or money to look at why people are shooting people. Mm -hmm. it, it's a band-aid solution that's not going to work. Let's talk about trial advocacy. You're not just um, a criminal defense lawyer, but a seasoned, hardened lawyer who does jury trials. Because a lot of people say they're criminal defense lawyers, but I think if you look percentage-wise, there's very few that actually go and do murder cases and jury trials, and you're, of course, one of them. So first, if you don't mind telling me some of your highlights of past cases, without you know, sharing private details, but what sort of cases do you typically do? We were just talking before we started that you just resolved a murder case and favorably. And it seems like that's sort of the trend of what you're into. Well, resolutions aren't necessarily the trend. No, but, no, no. I didn't but, mean it that way. But, <laughs> uh, no, I, I think about 75% of my practice now is homicides. So it's most of what I'm doing. I carry anywhere from five to seven at a time, which mm -hmm. as you know, is a pretty significant number for a sole practitioner. For sure. So that's most of what I spend my time on. The other 25% is divided from serious gun and drug cases. That's really all I do. Occasionally, there'll be, you know, a, a friend or a colleague that wants me to help out on a less serious case, like a summary offense case. I really don't do them. If I have one or two at a time, it's a lot. Uh, so most of my practice is focused on what I consider to be high-risk litigation. It's not likely to resolve. I, I love doing jury trials. I think that that is really the highlight of being a criminal defense lawyer. Have you always loved doing them? Yes. But what about, try and contrast yourself from your first jury trial to... I loved it. 
Really? I like, loved it. <laughs> I loved it. It's like, you know, I, I can't. No, there was no fear. There was no fear. I, you know what? I think that that's part of where my life experience comes into play. I don't feel fear when I walk into a courtroom. When I felt fear, it was when fear was justified. When I was, you know, a 17 year old street kid, that was scary. Nights out on the street, that was scary. My first night when I was 14 years old and slept in a shelter, that was scary. Walking into a courtroom, that, that's not scary. <laughs> that to me, I enjoy. That is where my client gets the full extent of the protection of the law. Right? That's what we tell people. You are innocent until you're presumed guilty. And the jury trial is the last step in that. That's really where you're testing the crown's case. That's where you're putting the crown to task. I love that. That to me is my favorite part of doing this job after bail hearings. Bail hearings are the best. <laughs> right. But the second to that is the jury trial. It's, it's where the law meets drama, right? That's where you get to be that courtroom lawyer that you grew up watching and reading about in John Grissom novels, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? That's where we get to pull it all together. That's when... You get your disclosure and it's the pieces of a puzzle and they're a mess. You don't even have necessarily the picture to work off yet. And you design that picture as you go through the case. And then you get to the jury trial and that's where all the pieces come together. My favorite thing is to sit down and write my closing address to the jury. I can spend days or weeks writing that. And to me, I, it's actually the part of the job that I enjoy the most. And that's where the client really sees that you are an advocate. You are doing everything you can within your power, within the context of the law, within your abilities to fight for their rights. I mean, that for me is what being a criminal defense lawyer is about. It's not about resolving the case. It's not about like, oh, let's see how we can work this out with the crown. I mean, there are some cases that that's how it has to go. And there are some place, cases that call for that. But do I like that part of the job? No, it's, it's part of the job. But the jury trial? No, that's the part of the job that, that excites me. So, you know, I often think of jury trials like playoffs, but nonstop. Every day is game day for months on end sometimes with some yes. of the homicides. And so I'm curious, how do you physically prepare for these high performance days, day to day, back to back? Uh, is there something, a trick that you've learned over the years to try and keep you peak performance? No, I think that you have, I think it's about structure. I think that I prepare for weeks on end leading up to jury trials. So the way that I prepare for a serious jury trial is to figure out how much time I need to really absorb the case. And I spend 10 or 12 hours a day doing nothing but living and breathing that case. And then I try to get as much sleep as I possibly can. I try to still make sure that I am working out and going to the gym and have that sort of stress release. I try to make sure that all of my other cases are covered and all of my other clients are looked after. I generally shut down the rest of my practice and focus on that one case, especially when it comes to murder trials because I'm, I'm fighting for someone's life. And I think that they deserve my undivided attention throughout that trial. And so I generally don't take on other work when I'm doing a, a jury trial unless it's, or especially a murder trial, especially unless it's for a client that um, I've done work for before and I explain to them, I'm in a murder trial, you're either going to have to wait or I'll have an associate look after it. Mm -hmm. um, and that's that's really what I do. I think it's just about staying focused. I put myself in my client's position. I think about what if I was on trial for murder? What would I want my lawyer to do? How would I want them to behave? How much focus would I want them to have on me? And that's what I do. I give them that. So passing that back to the client then so that they know what you're doing, you know, one of the hardest parts of, of being a litigator is being able to work at that high level, but at the same time, being able to translate what you're doing to clients and even difficult clients who have mental health problems or addiction. So um, what advice would you give to lawyers who find client relations a, a challenging thing for them? I think there's very little advice. If you can't relate to your client, maybe you should think about the clients you're representing, right? Maybe that's not the right client for you because... I don't do a lot of mental health work, for example, just because I don't have a very patient personality. That's the reality of who I am and that's <laughs> what I've known for a long time. There are lawyers out there who specialize in mental health work and they are unbelievably patient and compassionate and they do a phenomenal job. And so if I have someone call me or a family member call me and they have someone with serious mental health issues, I often refer it out to people who specialize in that area of law because I do think the client deserves that level of care. 
Mm-hmm. And so for me with my clients, I generally like my clients. I, I generally relate well to my clients. I freak out a lot of lawyers and court staff because during the trial, I'll go sit with them in the box. <laughs> I'll jump into the prisoner's box and explain things to them, right? If they don't understand what's happening and I don't want the whole courtroom to hear what I have to say, I'll jump in right beside them. And I sit down with them and explain, you know, why I had to jump up and object to that question, why we now have to adjourn for the day because I have to do the research that the judge needs in order to make the argument that I need to make and explain to them why that's important to the case. Mm -hmm. And I think that by the time you get to the trial, you generally, especially on murders, been repping the client for like two years, two and a half years. They now know you, they trust you, they know what you're about, and they know that you're there to fight for them. And so... I think that as long as you explain what that step is, you know, I think that we don't give enough credit to our clients and explain to them, hey, this is why that argument matters. This is why I need to object to that question and just give me the night to get the answer this judge needs and for me to formulate my thoughts on that objection and we're going to come back and see what happens. And they're good with that. They just want to understand what's happening. Mm -hmm. I think that lawyers don't appreciate that their clients really do want to understand what's happening and they have the capacity to understand what's happening. It's probably something that it's so innate in you that you don't even think of it as an issue, but how important do you see courage as a trait to being a good litigator, particularly in these types of cases you're describing? Oh, it's essential. You know, if it's something that someone is going to be trepidatious and addressing a jury, what would you say to that person? You got to swallow that. (laughs) (laughs) You just can't. You can't present well because part of litigation is is being confident in your position and if you're not confident in your own position no one else is going to have confidence in you so you have to believe the argument that you're selling Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right especially to a jury and if you're not confident in your own argument then i don't think you did a good job on the case whether you win or lose isn't isn't necessarily you know you're not determining that right now right you are building up to that closing to the jury. You're building up throughout the entire trial. You're laying the groundwork for that closing address with every single witness that's coming up. And whether it's just to discredit part of the Crown's case or to pull you know, some thread of evidence that you need for your closing, the closing is where you're putting it all together and explaining to the jury why they should acquit your client. And if you can't confidently convey to the jury why they should acquit your client, then you don't believe your client should be acquitted. I bet you a lot of people listening to this um, all of a sudden have a new hero, and that's you. But who are your heroes? <laughs> who are your heroes in litigation or otherwise? Is there someone that or people that you've looked up to and thought, that's who inspires me to become the lawyer I want to be? No, I think I want to do things differently than what I see. And by the same token, I've learned from so many people Over the years, I've learned a lot from judges. I've learned a lot from the judges that I've appeared in front of. The way that I want to conduct things, the way, the the level of preparedness that I needed. So I did my first ever superior court case in front of Justice Hill on an importing. Oh my gosh, that's intimidating. (laughs) That was that was my introduction to superior court. Some people listening to this may or may not know, but my cousin and one of my best friends is Leora Shemesh. And so I called Leora and said, hey, I've got my first Superior Court trial coming up. And she's like, oh, that's great. You know, what is it? And I said, it's an importing. Oh, who's the judge? I said, Justice Hill. And she just dead silent. She's like, (laughs) you better now read every single case on importing ever reported, period. Because, and you can't just stop at Canada. You better start researching the States and Australia. And she was right. Uh, The reality is he is such a brilliant judge, but he knows absolutely everything there is to know about that area of law. And so that was my, you know, introduction to superior court, but it's also set the tone for how I was going to prepare for every superior court case to follow, right? And that was totally absorbing the area of law that I was dealing with. And so I think that, you know, that's one example of um, a, a judge that certainly set the tone for how my practice was going to be and the level of respect that he garners within the, the justice system was huge. Um, I think that there's been different lawyers along the way that I have met and I've wanted to aspire to certain parts of their practice, mm-hmm. right? So obviously there were certain types of cases that I wanted to be doing. And so I admired the lawyers who were well-known within doing those types of cases. You know, I wanted Edward Sapiano and John Rosen are known for doing murders and their phenomenal court presence. 
Um, and so I wanted to aspire to be that. And then there's elements of their practice that I don't want, right? I wanted to carve out a niche on my own. Mm-hmm. So I don't think that I can point to one or two lawyers and say, I want to be like that person. So what are some of the largest changes you've seen since you started as a, a lawyer, Jordana, from you know the time you, you had your first case or even an articling student to where we are now? How has advocacy changed? How have you changed your practice? Where's some of the, the wisdom you have today that has evolved from those years? Well, my practice has changed because I, I started off working with what is now a very large firm. Um, but when I started, it was the principal lawyer and there was four associates and we worked together to try to build the firm up. And when I started, I, I just wanted to be in court and I wanted to read disclosure. So I every time I was sent to a set date, I would come back to the office and I would actually read the disclosure before giving the lawyer their disclosure. I just wanted to read it. I wanted to absorb every aspect of it. Um, and then I wanted to take every case that I possibly could and, and do anything that I could on a case. So when I started, I, when I started doing trials, which was about six months in, I was probably doing three or four summary offense trials a week. I was just doing everything that I possibly could. Mm-hmm. And then when I went on my own five years in, uh, I took every case that came to me. I didn't care about anything. I just wanted to build a practice. And then I realized building a massive practice as a sole practitioner is completely impossible. There was no work-life balance. There was no ability to manage all of those cases. And not only was I doing a disservice to myself, I was doing a disservice to the clients. They weren't getting the attention that they needed. And so I started uh, getting help with running my practice. And so now what I've done is become more focused on the type of cases that I do and the type of clients that I'm representing. So I actually interview with clients before I accept their cases, especially when they're on larger uh, matters that are going to take a few years. And I, I tell clients, come in, let's meet and see if our personalities work well together and that we're going to be able to work together for the next two years. Mm. Because I don't want either one of us stuck in a situation where, you know, you're arguing with the client. I don't like that. I don't want situations of, you know, bad relationships with the clients. And so I think that the success that I have achieved within the practice has allowed me to be more particular on the types of cases I get. Last question. If you had the power of an attorney general or you were sitting Supreme Court judge or you could just, by the snap of your fingers, change something that you've always hated about the law, uh, what would you like to see reversed or improved upon? Oh, my God. I would end probation today. Period. I would not ever have anyone on probation. I don't think it helps anyone. Um, I don't think it helps society. I've, I've spoken about this before. I just... I would simply do away with probation. I think that I would want judges to know more about an accused before sentencing. I would definitely want to fix our bail system. I've just recently heard that the Crown's office has established a new team of prosecutors who are going to be doing all gun bails in the entire Golden Horseshoe. There will be 10 prosecutors now who are assigned to do gun bails and you have to use one of these prosecutors for any gun bail hearing and their entire job is to keep people in jail who are charged with guns you know when you're operating on that sort of principle i mean it completely flies in the face of what our criminal justice system is supposed to stand for i I don't understand how this is you know conceived of as being acceptable without any consideration of the person who's charged, the circumstances in which they're being charged, where the gun was found, what information led to their arrest. I mean, to simply have a team assembled in order to oppose someone's release on bail, it completely flies in the face of the presumption of innocence. And so I think that bail is something that I would most certainly address immediately. Probation is something that I would certainly address immediately. And our sentencing regime is something that I would address immediately. I don't know how we can justify sending people to jail for two, three, four years for trafficking cocaine, um, but child pornographers get six months and a year probation. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's ridiculous because you know they're creating the victims that are turning out towards all of these drug traffickers as purchasers, which is, of course, without any demand, there is no need for supply. And I think that the criminal justice system really ignores that principle when we look at who we're sentencing and what sort of sentences we're giving out. 
So I think that's another area of the law I would certainly want to address immediately. Well, like you say, everyone has a story, and I'm so (laughs) glad that you shared it with us. Thank you for having me on here. Thanks, Jordana. Thanks for listening to our podcast today with Jordana Goldless. I want to thank our sponsor once again, LexisNexis Canada. LexisNexis is one of Canada's leading legal resource providers. If you enjoyed our podcast today, make sure that you visit their bookstore at store.lexisnexis.ca and use the search term criminal to browse the comprehensive criminal law titles that LexisNexis has to offer. Also, as a new initiative in our podcast, if you want to ask us a question, visit robishowlaw.ca backslash podcast question and fill out the form to have your question read or played on the podcast. Ask any of our criminal lawyers anything you want, criminal litigation, practice of law, opinions on recent development in the news, criminal legislation, or anything else you might find of interest. We'll do what we can to get all those questions answered. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Of Counsel.